0: Our sermon text comes from 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is God's word. Amen. You can be seated. Um, Our preschoolers are now dismissed to their class. I want to invite you all to head on back to the back there. Everybody staying in the room, I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word and turn with me all the way, almost all the way to the end of your Bible to 1 John. We're going to be looking at the first four verses of 1 John this morning. 1 John, almost at the end of your Bible. If you have one, I really want to encourage you to get it out. Uh, We will have the passage on the screen behind me, but we're starting a new sermon series walking through 1 John. I want you to be comfortable and familiar with 1 John. We have from now all the way until Advent, uh, so all the way until November 20th. November 20th will be our last week in 1 John. Commit now, between now and then, do not let this opportunity slip past you. 1 John is not a very long book do not let the opportunity slip. Please read the entire letter multiple times between now and November 20th. You have so much time. We're going to be giving so much attention to it here. Focus on 1 John. Um, I'm not exactly sure where they are. We've ordered them, um, but we are going to have scripture journals available for anyone who's really interested in those. They're so these really nice, like compact. Uh, ESV Scripture journals that uh, basically just on one side will have you know the the scriptures and on the other hand, uh, other side just a place for you to take notes. So we'll have those available to you. I really want us to dive deep into First John this semester. And so as you've probably made your way to First John, I want to remind you of our practice of preaching at Trace Crossing. We have a yearly rhythm of preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse, and we preach verse by verse through books from the Old Testament, and then we take a break, and and sometimes we'll have like a, a, you know, a, a topical series that we choose based on where we are as a church, and then we jump right back into the New Testament preaching verse by verse again, and that's because we have a conviction here that all of the Bible, not just the parts we like not just the parts that we feel are relevant, not just the parts we're comfortable with, but all of the Bible is God's word. And all of the Bible is profitable for our lives. We need all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, to know God, and to become disciples who love God and others. So we're preaching 1 John because, on the one hand, the last book we preached from was in the Old Testament, in Genesis. And then the last time we preached a New Testament book, we were in Acts, and so now it's time for us to return to what we call the general epistles, and those are just the letters that weren't written by Paul. So here we are, back in 1 John. The short of it, why are we in 1 John? It's because we want to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God, and we have yet to preach this part of God's word to you. So we need to to walk through it together. Now, 1 John is also a Wonderful book of the Bible for a church like ours to walk through, especially in the season that we're in we over the past few years have experienced a lot of change a lot of transition and it's not we don't need to become siloed here like this is true of a lot of churches over the past few years there's just been so much so much turmoil so much transition, so much change and we obviously have have experienced that ourselves and We've also been doing a lot of hard work to clarify who we are as a church and what we're striving to become. And so in the midst of all this change, it is, we have to admit, it is easy for us to lose sight of what our church's priorities should be. Not, not what we want them to be, but what they should be. It's so easy to lose sight of that. It's easy to lose sight of what the Christian life is all about. What does it mean to be a Christian? How should we be living our lives? It's so easy to lose sight of that in light of all the the transition and change over the past few years. And if we're brutally honest, we probably would not like to admit this. It is even easy to start doubting why the church matters at all. Or maybe it's even easy for us to start to doubt the gospel itself. 1 John was written for Christians who doubt. 1 John was written for Christians who are confused. Have you ever felt that way? You're not going to nod your head. You can't do that. You're in church. You can't say you would ever be confused or doubt anything about the gospel or the scriptures or God, but have you ever felt that way? I'm not saying that our church is confused about the gospel. I'm thankful we're in a church that's really clear about what the gospel is, and we're not confused about it. What I'm saying is a church like ours, in a cultural context like ours, the Bible Belt, we need to be abundantly clear, and we need to provide abundant assurance about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what that should mean for our church and our lives. 1 John offers this clarity and assurance. Now, if if you read 1 John, it says it's a letter. The first letter of John is what it says in my Bible. Uh, This is a unique letter in the sense why we call it one of the general epistles. It's not written by Paul, but it's also kind of interesting. It doesn't really, you know, function like a letter. It's very different from Paul's letters. There's no greeting at the beginning. You know, we're not told, you remember Paul at the end of his letter sometimes, he'd be like, see, it's me, it's Paul, I'm writing in this big handwriting, you know, it's like he'd pull out his John Hancock, you know, signature or something, you know, Paul. Um, But, you know, John doesn't do that. His name is in the title, but he does not, technically the letter is anonymous. Technically it is. Um, However, we can be fairly confident that it was written by the Apostle John, the disciple that Jesus loved. This is the same John who wrote the fourth gospel, second and third John, as well as Revelation. And there are some who, who may, you know, contend with that or disagree with that. For, but for the most part, over the course of 2,000 years, the, the testimony and witness of the church has been that the apostle John wrote 1 John. Now, 1 John was also most likely written to house churches in Ephesus. Information that 's also not explicitly shared here, but church tradition tells us that John was overseeing house churches in ephesus in in and around the late first century, and so first John seems to be written more generally for all the churches in the area now, when he writes second John and third John, it gets more and more specific. Second John seems to be written to a specific church, and then third John even seems to be written to a specific church member, so so it gets a little bit more specific. First John feels a little bit more general. Now, as we journey through 1 John over the next 16 weeks, we're going to divide it into four sections, if you're just kind of breaking down the letter itself, four sections. Just I was looking for something really big like that to, to grab onto, and thankfully we have a few markers to help us do that well. We have an introduction, that's the first four verses that we're going to look at this morning. There's an introduction, first four verses. Then, from 1 John 1, verse 5, all the way to chapter 3, verse 10 there's a section that we can call that's essentially based on the theme light and so we can just call it light from 1 John 1:5 1, to 1 John 3:10 and it's based here it says in verse 5 this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and so for that entire section it's basically unpacking what that means for the church Well, the second section that begins in 1 John 3 verse 11 and extends all the way almost to the end of the book to 1 John 5 verse 17, we could call that section love. And this is where where God, or where God, John really focuses on the love of God and how that should play out in the life of the church. And then finally, at the very end, there's three verses or a few verses that we can call the conclusion, 1 John 5, 18 through 21. So we've broken it down kind of in, in these terms just to help us have a broad picture of what's going on thematically, understanding. And we're going to be preaching, obviously, all the way through each of these verses. Now, as John opens his letter, which to be honest feels a little bit more like a sermon than a letter um, he opens it with a strangely worded prologue. Christie probably had to practice reading this before she even came here it's so it's so hard to read like it's I mean just follow with me that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon and have touched with our hands I mean if I wrote something like that in school I would have gotten it would have been torn up you know it' been torn to pieces like can't begin sentences like this. What are you? Ta- what are you even talking about? You know, you're just rambling on, and, and so it's it's kind of it's kind of strangely worded. It's not a greeting, but it is an introduction. But what John does here is he accomplishes a couple things in this prologue. First, he establishes his credentials. He's saying I was an eyewitness to Jesus. He, he's saying I experienced the gospel firsthand. So this is a firsthand eyewitness testimony that you're gonna get from me. When I'm telling you about the message of the gospel, I'm telling you as a person who was there when it happened. I saw it with my own eyes. But second, in this prologue, though it's strangely worded and though it's it's rather short, John defends the origin, validity, power, and goodness of the gospel. There's a central phrase in this in this uh you know mesh of words here. A central phrase that we need to focus on. The word of life. It's found here at the end of verse 1 concerning the word of life. When, when John uses this phrase, he's most likely referring to the gospel. It's a euphemism, another, another way of speaking of the gospel, the message, the word of life. And he has all these clauses that describe the word of life. The word of life, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have touched with our hands, that which was made manifest, that which was with the Father. And then John tells us, he says, that this eternal word of life that was made manifest in the fullness of time is the message that he has come to proclaim to them. So he's describing this thing. He says, this is the word of life. And he gives all these descriptions of what it actually is. And he says, I have come and I have come to proclaim, to preach this message to you. And then finally, John tells them why he has come to proclaim the message of the word of life, this message, this word of life that he has fully experienced, and he gives two reasons. He said, first, so that you will have fellowship with us, and that's important because we have fellowship with God, so, so it's for the, for the benefit of fellowship, and then finally, he says, so that our joy may be complete. Why has he come to preach the message of the, the message of the word of life for fellowship and for joy? John is writing to people who are currently in the midst of doubting this word of life that he's defending in this prologue. They're doubting it. They're confused. They're shaken. They're not really sure who the Jesus they were following really was. They're not sure. They've been shaken by the actions of others. And so in order to understand why John wrote this letter and why we need it, we need to see two things about this word of life. First, we really need to focus on why the church of John's time doubted the word of life. And then finally, we need to see how the word of life is defended by John so the word of life doubted the word of life defended let's think about doubt for a second so John's writing to churches in Ephesus Ephesus was a particularly difficult place to be a Christian it was a difficult it was a hard place to be a Christian there was a lot of persecution in Ephesus. There, there was a lot of false teaching in Ephesus. And you remember, Paul was very concerned about this area and the church in this region. And Back in Acts 20, when we were walking through it, you remember Paul, he gathered all the elders from Ephesus. He gathered them all together for the purpose of warning them that false teachers would try to infiltrate the church. And then later, Paul warned one of the pastors of the church in Ephesus, Timothy, of false teachers that would come in the church, Paul was very concerned about the presence of false teachers in the churches in Ephesus, and false teachers were still plaguing the church in Ephesus at the time that John wrote this letter. And this is really clear actually, from First John chapter two. Look at it really quickly with me. First John 2, verse 19, or verse 18. He says, "Children. It is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. We know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. You see, there was division in the church in Ephesus, there were people who had started to claim that Jesus was not, in fact, the Messiah anti Antichrist, you know, the, the many Antichrists that have shown up here. These are just, you know, we think about the figure of the Antichrist and left behind and, you know, all the all the good stuff there. But uh, Antichrist is just simply a person who opposes Jesus as the Messiah. They're anti-Jesus. They're anti-Messiah. And so uh, in this context, these were people who were coming and preaching that Jesus is not the Messiah. Now, here's what's interesting about that. These people who are preaching this were members of these churches. They were in these churches. They didn't just come from the outside. They were a part of these churches. And so they come in. They had believed in Jesus, but they have since left the church. So, John writes this letter, and he sees a need. He sees a need first to defend the doctrine about Jesus. We need to clarify who he is. We need to clarify what he came to do. So, there was all this confusion about Jesus. John wants to clarify that, and he does that in this letter. The second, he wrote it to provide assurance to the believers in Ephesus. He tells us his purpose in writing, actually, in 1 John five thirteen, toward the end of the letter. He says... I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know you have eternal life. This is an issue of assurance. How are you prone to doubt? As I said earlier, 1 John was written for doubting people. It was written for followers of Jesus who are sometimes unsure that what they believe is true. Sometimes unsure that all of this is real and that it actually matters. The situation in the churches of Ephesus that prompted John to write this letter reminds me that sometimes... There are things that can happen in the life of a church that can have damaging effects on the spiritual lives of the members of that church, meaning you can just be a member of a church. Something can happen that has absolutely nothing to do with you. You're completely uninvolved. You just observe it. It happens. In in the case of the churches in Ephesus, it's false teaching. But you observe it. You see it happen. And it has this deep spiritual impact on your heart. You feel and bear some of the consequences of what happens around you. And it can cause you to doubt. False teachers had created confusion and uncertainty, both through their teaching that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, but also through their desertion of the church and the faith. You see, when we, when we think about false teachers, at least when I think about false teachers and I read about them in Scripture, I just think of these just manipulative, maniacal, evil people. They just, they're even, they're even a little ugly in my mind, you know. It's just like you can spot them, spot them like, oh yeah, false teacher there, get out of here. No, listen, these false teachers that were in these churches, they were friends with these believers. They probably had them over for dinner. They knew them. They worshiped with them. And then now, all of a sudden, they've been swayed by this idea that Jesus isn't actually the Messiah. And so they abandoned the faith and they abandoned the church and now everything's different. Can you imagine the impact that that would have had on the early church? By leaving the church... These false teachers, they left a hole of doubt in the hearts of those who remained. I mean, can you imagine what they must have been thinking? The ones who were left? Should I leave too? Well, those smart guys. Maybe they're right. Maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah. I don't know. I I'm, I mean it's made sense to me, but I mean, this could all be wrong. Or am I gonna become just like them? I thought we were so similar. Am I one day going to leave the faith too? I mean, maybe they're right. Maybe Jesus is a fraud. Or, well, they obviously weren't true believers. But then what impact does that have on you? You say, I mean, maybe I'm not really a believer. You see how easy... These things creep in, these doubts. Now, false teaching about Jesus is probably more prevalent than we're willing to admit in in the church in the South, but it's not quite as obvious. But there are things that can happen in the church that can cause us to doubt the gospel, the word of life. And I would say that hypocrisy is the primary catalyst for doubt in the church in the South. Some of you know this, but I I spend a lot of time with unbelievers in Tupelo. I I, I have friends, um, just spend a lot of time talking to people who are not followers of Jesus. And, you know, I get the impression from a lot of Christian publishers and from social media that people think that, Those who aren't in the church are not in the church because they have some intellectual, you know, uh, objection to Christianity. You know, they like, oh, well, I just I believe in evolution. So, you know, I I can't become a Christian. It's just or, you know, I believe in science, so I can't become a Christian. That's not what I see here. That's that may be true in other places where you have intellectual skepticism that keeps people from the church. That's I'm sure it's true in other places. That's not what I see here. What I see here in the majority of people I talk to that are not followers of Jesus, they used to belong to churches. Or their parents took them to church at minimum. Their parents took them to church when they grew up. Occasionally I meet people who have no frame of reference for the church whatsoever. Most of the time they're not from here. And do you know why they're no longer part of the church? Number one reason they give. And, of course, I push back on them, and it's like, I mean, you have to make your own decisions. But the emotional impact that led them to not want to be a part of the church anymore, nine times out of ten, is hypocrisy that they see in Christians. Nine times out of ten. Most of the time, it's with a relative or family member. My mom taught Sunday school. I'm not, not my mama, but they'll, they'll tell me. My parents, they taught Sunday school. And they abused us at home. My parents taught Sunday school, but I saw how they treated their friends. That's powerful. Hypocrisy is powerful. Nothing puts a bad taste in your mouth for Jesus. Like when you see his people not living in ways that are consistent with their beliefs. And it makes you wonder, just makes you wonder, If they ever really believed it to begin with, is this even real for them? They say they believe these things, but I see how they live. And you become jaded, and you start to spiral, and you start to wonder do I really believe it? And eventually, you may even start to wonder if it's even true to begin with and if you've ever felt this way if you've ever doubted the gospel whether whether because of what you see in other people hypocrisy so you see someone and they're claiming to follow Jesus but then they don't follow Jesus and it has this impact on your heart where you're like well there's obviously a problem here either Jesus isn't real, the gospel isn't powerful, and there's no way this person can be changed, or this isn't real for them at least, and so maybe it's not real for me, but it ends up leading you to doubt the gospel itself. If you've ever felt that way, I want you to see that you are not the first Christian to doubt. You're not. John, the Apostle John, wrote a letter that we still have preserved in Holy Scripture today, 2,000 years later, because there were Christians like us who were doubting, doubting they didn't have assurance of their own salvation, and possibly even doubting this that he calls the word of life. And so this letter that was written in the late first century was written to address those doubts, to provide assurance, and to help doubting Christians regain confidence and not remain in the darkness of confusion. That's why we need to study it. Because we are prone, just as they were, to doubt. Now he then moves on to defend the word of life. And we ask ourselves, what assurance can we have when doubts about the gospel arise in our hearts? How can we trust The message of the word of life. Despite the hypocrisy we see in others and the hypocrisy we see in ourselves. You see, John says, here's his pastoral counsel to us. When that happens, when doubts fill your heart, focus on the gospel itself. Focus on the gospel itself. Focus on the message we preached. And this is amazing pastoral counsel. It's amazing. Like, we need to adopt this as elders to, uh, to counsel you with as well. It's, it's so wonderful. You see, our doubts, we can, we can admit, often originate in the actions of other people or our experiences of other people, their hypocrisy. Or they can also originate within us, in our own failures to follow Jesus as we should, our own hypocrisy. And so we, we wonder Do we really even believe this, or is this even true? But John says, when you doubt, focus instead not on how other people are living, not even on yourself. Focus instead on the message. Test it. See if it can be trusted. And so John gives us four reasons that we can trust the gospel, the word of life, when we doubt. Four reasons. Reason number one, the gospel can be trusted because it's divine divine. It's divine origin, okay? The message of the gospel originated with God. And this is what we see right at the very beginning of this letter. He says that the word of life was from the beginning, that which was from the beginning. And then later on, he actually says, this is amazing, by the way. He says, um, where where are we? Verse 2, the life was made manifest. We have seen it, testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and then was made manifest to us. So what John's saying here is that this message of, of life in Jesus, salvation, is not the fabrication of any man or woman. John's saying, I didn't make this up. The other apostles did not make this up. We didn't create this on a whim. In fact, he says, the word of life predates the appearance of Jesus himself. So while the good news that God saved sinners was made manifest with the coming of Jesus, it's revealed, we see it tangibly, Jesus comes, and he is the fulfillment of God's desire and plan to save sinners God's plan to save sinners actually stretches back into eternity past. God has always had a plan to save sinners. So you're doubting today, maybe, whether God has actually saved you. You need to first see that you can trust the gospel because he planned to save you before he created the son. He planned to save you before anything else in all creation came about. The good news that God saved sinners was from the beginning it was with the Father so the gospel can be trusted because of its divine origin but the gospel reason number two can be trusted also because it's rational I love what John does here he's like you've got all these emotional reasons why you're doubting Christianity you're doubting the faith you're doubting the gospel because This person that you were close to, they've rejected Jesus and they've moved on. And it's having this emotional impact on your heart. And most of us, when we doubt, it is emotionally based. You know, most of the time it's not intellectually based. It's emotional for us. Something something has changed. Something's happened. We've been mistreated by someone who claims to follow Jesus. And we have this crisis of faith. And I love what John does. He says, take a deep breath. I need you you to understand the nature of what I'm going to unpack for you in this letter. And part of it is rooted in eyewitness testimony. This is rational. This faith that you're doubting, that you're worried about, that you're wondering about, it is a very rational faith. So John tells them that he fully experienced the gospel firsthand. The message that he proclaimed was not something that he learned from a book. This is, this is huge. Okay? This did not come from some Jewish rabbi's TED talk, you know, that he saw on YouTube. And he was like, oh, man, what a cool message. I'm going to share that with my friends. No. He didn't receive this from anyone. He was there as it happened, as it unfolded. It's just happening before his eyes. He's just like, I don't know what to tell you guys. I saw it. I heard it. I touched it. I was there. The message that he proclaims to us, the word of life, is something tangible. It's physical. And that's because the word of life, the gospel, is inseparably linked To Jesus of Nazareth. There is no gospel apart from his physical, flesh and blood appearance in time and in space. And so, right out the gate in this letter, John wants us to see that we can be confident despite our doubts by focusing on the fact that our faith is in something that happened in time, in history, and that he was a witness to this event. He says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. John's saying, despite what these false teachers have claimed, they've come in here and they've said, no, Jesus is not who he said he was. No, all these guys that got it wrong. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Savior. Stop following him. They're they're having this crisis. They're confused. John says, no, look, I, I know they're telling you guys that. And I know that that's having an impact on you. But I was there. And, guys, I, that's, that's one of the most powerful things. I, I can't offer you that. I, I, wish, I wish I was able to offer you that, you know, in pastoral counsel. I'm really struggling to believe this. I can't say, well, listen, you can... You can trust the message I'm preaching because I was there when it happened. I wasn't there when it happened. I did receive it from a book. It has been passed down from generation to generation. But when this was written, John says, now listen, I was there when it happened. I saw it with my own eyes. And how powerful is that? Witnesses are powerful. Sometimes in in, in a court proceeding, if there's shaky evidence, what leads to a conviction? Eyewitness testimony. Someone stands up on the witness stand, and they're like, I was there. And it makes sense. They describe things, and they make sense. Like, yeah, you sound like you were there. And it's powerful, and sometimes those, that leads to conviction. I love what John Stott says about the Christian message, the word of life. He says, the Christian message is neither a philosophical speculation nor a tentative suggestion nor a modest contribution to religious thought. But a confident affirmation by those whose experience and commission have qualified them to make it. So this morning, if you're struggling with doubt, and you're doubting Jesus, you're doubting the gospel, you're, you're you know, wondering if all this really matters, I would encourage you to not even take my word for it. Take the Apostle John's word for it. He was there. He saw Jesus. He walked with him. He talked with him. He ate with him. He did life with him. He saw him live a sinless life and he saw him die on a cross and he shook his hand after he rose from the dead. We can trust the gospel because it is rational. Third, third reason we can trust the gospel is because it is powerful. It's powerful. John tells us what this word of life creates, what, what it leads to. And he says that it leads to a couple things. First, it leads to fellowship with God. It says in verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ he's saying here when you believe the gospel something happens you are ushered into a new reality and a new relationship when you believe the gospel you have fellowship with other people who believe in Jesus so we can see that our faith is not individualistic we're not alone there's a fellowship but This fellowship with others is based on a deeper fellowship. When we believe the gospel, we enter into fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. This is huge, especially if you know the scriptures, especially if you know the the gospel of John. We are invited into the eternal fellowship between God the Father and God the Son that they have enjoyed for all of eternity. The word of life creates this reality the gospel itself creates this reality so while the gospel may be poorly represented by some Christians and it may be poorly represented by you and or by me from time to time and we're poor representations and we give people reason to to doubt because of our own hypocrisy or we doubt because of the hypocrisy we see in other people none of that changes this fundamental reality that the word of life creates fellowship With God, there are plenty of people who will deny the gospel or twist the gospel. But the raw, unfiltered, real message of the word of life is powerful enough to bring you into a loving and eternal fellowship with God himself. When you share the gospel with someone else and they come to faith, they don't just adopt new beliefs. They don't just, you know, adopt a new religious system. They they don't just join a new group to be a part of. They enter into an eternal fellowship with God himself. So we can trust the gospel because of how powerful it is, what it does for us. But finally, we can trust the gospel because it is good. It's good. It has a divine origin. It's, it's rational. It's powerful. And it is good. And this is what we see in verse 4. John writes, We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And when he says our joy, he's not referring to himself and whoever he's writing on behalf of. He's referring to himself and the people that he's writing to collectively. My joy and your joy will be complete. That's why we're writing to you about the gospel. That's why we're going to be writing to you about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. The gospel leads to joy in God, and I love it so much. He's saying, I'm clarifying All of this truth about Jesus for your joy. Not just for the sake of you having more information or or greater clarity so that you can think rightly about God. That's part of it. But don't you love this? John says it's important for me to clarify the gospel to you for your joy. For your happiness. So that it will be complete. Complete. The immediate purpose of the gospel and its proclamation is fellowship with God. But the ultimate purpose of the gospel and its proclamation is joy. And now, as we all know, obviously, this is a reality that we will only taste partially now. Only partially. Joy in God is a very real experience that's open to each one of us. But he says here, we're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Completed joy, perfect joy, is impossible in a world of sin. And the same is obviously true of perfect fellowship. These are realities that are reserved for the new heavens and the new earth. But it doesn't change the fact that the gospel is good. And the gospel is good because of where it's taking us. Your experience, this is what John is is letting you know here, your experience of hypocrisy, your own hypocrisy, your experience of sin and brokenness, of pain and sorrow, of loss and grief, of anxiety and depression, are temporary experiences despite how devastating and very real they are. They're temporary. One day, one day, I love this counsel from John so much to doubting Christians. Quit focusing on yourself. Quit focusing on other people and look deep into the gospel and see that apart from your initiative, apart from your call or your own doing, God has done something. He has stepped in. And one day, because of what he's done in Jesus, sin will be no more. One day, evil will be eliminated. One day, tears will be wiped away. One day, loss will be replaced by eternal gain. One day, we will see Jesus face to face. His joy will be our joy. His fellowship will be ours. And in the words of John Stott, consummated fellowship will bring completed joy. So despite your own failures and despite the hypocrisy of other people, despite the way that some will twist God's word, we can look deeply into the gospel, the word of life, and see its divine origin. And see its rationality, see its historical basis. We can see its power and we can see its goodness. And at the end of the day, we can trust that the word of life that we believe will bear fruit that stretches into eternity where we will have fellowship with God and where we will have the fullness of joy.